Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of a public affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Twenty twenty two witnessed the spate of gun massacres, a continuation of mass shooting of innocents carried out by lone gunmen? How do we come to understand them? What is that phenomenon about? And are there possible preventive solutions? Our guest today, journalist Mark Fulman, has been covering mass shootings for the past decade. Currently, the National Affairs Editor at Mother Jones and a former editor of Salon, his reporting and commentaries have also appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, The Los Angeles Times, and numerous other outlets. He's the author of Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Mark Fulman, welcome to WORT. Thank you for having me on today. Mark, you know, <clears throat> we all noted that December 14th marked the 10th anniversary of the murder of 20 first graders and six educators at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. In a recent piece, you wrote that that event had a profound effect on many people, yourself included, that investigating and writing about gun violence became your prime journalistic pursuit since. Let's start with that trajectory, where that tragedy led you. Yeah, well, when I think back on it 10 years ago, um, the year 2012, I, I had been reporting on gun violence to some degree before that in, in my work as a journalist. Uh, but that year in particular was really watershed in, in, in several ways. Um, my work on, on investigating mass shootings had actually begun about six months before Sandy Hook. Uh, there was the, a massacre in a movie theater in Colorado, you may recall, in Aurora, Colorado that year, uh, that at the time was was really an unprecedented event. It's, it's a little hard to, to think of it in those terms now, given how much of this has happened since. But at the time, that was really shocking. And I went looking for data on mass shootings and, and was startled to find that there was virtually nothing available publicly. And so at Mother Jones, we began work on what then was the first of its kind uh, online open source database documenting this problem of, of public mass shootings in America. Uh, we looked at cases going back 30 years and started to analyze and study the problem. Um, and there were several more major attacks that fall. Um, and then of course, Sandy Hook in December uh, really exploded this into into a national issue in, in ways that we hadn't yet seen at the time um, with that just uh, beyond devastating event. Uh, that brought a lot of attention to the database work we were doing. And at that point, I was already headed down a road of, of various kinds of reporting on the mass shootings problem uh, in the United States. You mentioned in, in the article, uh, just referencing, <clears throat> excuse me, that you began to look at 
behavioral threat assessment. Explain what that is. Sure. So behavioral threat assessment is a method of violence prevention. It's community-based, and it essentially brings together um, teams of people with with several kinds of expertise, uh, foremost in mental health care, uh, in law enforcement. Uh, educators are involved in terms of um, trying to prevent school shootings. Um, you have workplace security professionals and HR professionals involved. And what this does is bring together groups of people who do this work, who are trained in threat assessment, which is essentially the work of uh, looking at specific individual cases of concern where, where a person is raising concern about what appears to, to be potentially violent behavior, threatening behavior um, through a variety of different behaviors and circumstances, and then making a plan to intervene with that person and to try to head off the planning and preparation for violence before a violent attack occurs. Um, this is work that's gone on for decades in the United States, but was virtually unknown until the last few years. And when I uh, had gotten deeper into studying mass shootings, I began to learn about it in, in 2013, uh, became very interested in the potential of the work as I learned about cases. Um, and then that eventually uh, led me to develop the book that I wrote, Trigger Points, which which focuses on this prevention work. I, of course, want to come back to um, be, this whole analysis, this behavioral threat assessment work. Um, but I want to broaden the story a little bit before we go there. Uh, a decade after Sandy Hook, a spate of gun massacres occurred in 2022. Um, it's only further clarified how America, America can and should think more broadly about the, controlling this distressing problem. You state that long-term efforts to improve gun relations in ways that a bipartisan majority of Americans support will remain vital. But you note a number of log jams or obstacles to progress on on that front. Uh, you write, you've written that, the, that the, excuse me, the reality that we are a country with an estimated 400 million firearms, which was easy to which were easy to acquire, and include millions of rifles designed only for use in war, uh, makes the is certainly one of the obstacles. But talk about them. That is certainly what I want to focus on here is the status quo that is unlikely to change broadly uh, anytime soon. Well, I think anyone in our country who, who has paid any attention to the issue of gun violence and, and gun politics is, is very familiar with the uh, political arguments that we have in our country about regulating firearms. Um, one of the things I tried to do with, with trigger points was to really move beyond that debate um, and get into really what became a fundamental question for me long ago. What more can we do to solve this problem? And I came to see that part of that is recognizing the reality of, of the landscape that we live in, which is a vast quantity of firearms. They're loosely regulated in many parts of the country. We have a very patchwork regulatory system for guns. Uh, guns have also become very politicized, obviously. Um, and I think that that has created a dynamic that is in some ways very counterproductive to solving the problem of gun violence, regardless of where one falls on the spectrum of gun politics. I think everyone can recognize that gun violence is a serious issue in our society, that mass shootings 
have become a bigger problem in recent years. That's one of the things that we documented initially with our database work at Mother Jones, was the frequency and lethality of these attacks were growing. That's continued to be the case. And so really, I think the imperative becomes what can we do more broadly to, to deal with this issue when we know that the politics uh, for many, many years have been essentially stuck? Although there are some myths with that, too, in terms of nothing ever changing. And I write about that in, in my recent essay, uh, 10 Years After Sandy Hook, that we've become, I think, inured to this idea that nothing can ever change, when in fact that's not true at all. Many, many things have changed around this issue legislatively and politically over the past decade. What the carnage of 2022 has shown in, in what you describe as vivid terms is how two specific areas of policy could take us far in confronting mass shootings, uh, the mass shooting scourge. Talk about that, those two specific areas. You talk about, um, well, demystifying really this heavy overemphasis on active shooter response, et cetera, as, as at some level part of the problem. Sure. Uh, you know, a, a core part of my work on studying this problem over the past decade has been pattern recognition in the data, right? So looking at cases and what we can learn from them about the nature of the problem of mass shootings and then what we can do about it to try to stop it. Um, and I think it's become clearer in recent years that there are several tools we have at our disposal that that have a lot of promise again recognizing the reality of of guns in the country that we have so many of them that they are easy to get in many places um, behavioral threat assessment is one tool that i talk about obviously is the focus of of, of my book uh, prevention work um, and that goes to the core of what you were raising the, this idea that after every major mass shooting we we see a lot of heavy emphasis in, in political and policy discussion about reaction. What can we do to react to this problem? Um, active shooter drills, more police officers in schools and, and workplaces and other settings, um, fortifying places physically with physical security. Uh, my view is that we need to do a lot more and can do a lot more with prevention to, to stop people from doing this in the first place. So uh, behavioral threat assessment is one tool for that prevention work. There are also some very specific gun regulations that have shown promise. One that I discuss in, in the recent pieces, so-called red flag laws, uh, which is a, a, a civil court process for temporarily removing firearms from individuals who are uh, determined to be dangerous by a judge uh, based on evidence presented in court. Um, like many other gun regulations, it's, it's hotly debated in political terms. But there is research now that shows that this has been an effective policy for preventing attacks, uh, planned violent attacks, and suicide, which, which has a strong nexus with, with the mass shootings problem as well. Um, so that's th those are some of the areas that I look at as, as um, areas of potential progress on, on the problem. Stay with the red flag laws for, for a moment. The response to it, to me, appears to be, well, irrational at some level. Uh, that is, you you raise the issue of, uh, it, it's in some ways related to the whole thing about uh, uh, ID, uh, ID checks uh, for getting guns, registering guns, and so on and so forth. 
Um, but it, has, it, it raises the ire of all sorts of folks on, on both sides of the spectrum, really. Well, we, in the politics of, of guns, we've become really used to, uh, I think, these, these sort of extreme ideological views of regulation. Um, whether left or right, meaning um, it's sort of an all or nothing proposition. And so the response to um, a policy tool like a red flag law um, for folks who are, are absolutist about gun rights is to say, well, this is, you know, uh, uh, an encroachment on the constitutional right. Um, you know, I don't really get into that debate. I think there's a more pragmatic way to look at the, the, the problem. Um, and what I find so interesting about the debate over red flag laws in particular is you see in the opposition to them, um, often from, you know, people who identify as very conservative Republican, including uh, political leaders, will say, you know, this is uh, an infringement on our, on our rights to have firearms. Um, but at the same time, these are folks who say after every massacre we need to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. They, they blame mental illness and, and people who have gone crazy and say, oh, we can't let them have guns. That's precisely what red flag laws are designed to do in a very specific and kind of surgical way. Um, and, and they've uh, been shown to be successful to some extent in recent research. This is a relatively new uh, policy tool. Um, but I think that, that juxtaposition of political uh, opposition with um, the the call for um, removing guns from potentially dangerous people is, is interesting and, and says a lot about where we are and the way that we're sort of um, held hostage to the, the political fight over this problem. You're listening to Mark Fulman, who's National Fears uh, editor at Mother Jones, uh, has been researching and writing about mass shootings, mass gun violence, uh, in the States for over 10 years uh, and is the author of Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. As we usually do, we'll open up the phone lines at uh, half past the hour at 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you want to join with in this conversation with a question, a comment, an observation. Again, 608-256-2001 extension nine talk about those suggested or recommended um types of gun regulations uh raising the uh, the age requirement expanding the use of uh extreme protection orders and so on extreme risk excuse me protection orders sure that that's the more technical name for red flag for, yeah. red flag laws um yeah, the other the other measure that I, I focused on in the piece was the the idea of raising the age for gun buyers from 18 to 21, which was something that came up this year in the context of the uh, gun safety legislation passed by Congress, which was a, a very uh, notable moment in, in our national gun politics. We hadn't seen legislation passed by Congress in two decades um, on this issue. And one of the uh, proposed ideas on the table was raising the, the age limit for buyers. Um, you know, there's no single measure that's going to stop gun violence or stop mass shootings. But one of the things that I noticed in studying the case data from this year, including this, this big wave of terrible 
gun massacres we had in 2022 is that the perpetrators were following very similar patterns in terms of their uh, their profile of what they were doing behaviorally and who they were. Um, these were all 18 to 22 year olds in, in the five cases that I that I focus in on talking about Uvalde, Buffalo, Highland Park, uh, Colorado Springs most recently, and also the shooting at University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Uh, the types of weapons they were using, tactical gear. Um, these cases had a lot of similar behavioral and circumstantial patterns in them. And there are cases going back, multiple cases going back over the past 10 years, where you can see in, in the young perpetrators, there was the possibility that if they had been prevented from purchasing firearms legally at age 18 or 19 or 20, that could have helped stop the, the terrible event from occurring. That in and of itself isn't, isn't going to fix the problem entirely, as I said, of course. Guns are still very easy to get in a lot of ways, and they can be obtained illegally. Though this was an important early discovery in the data analysis with our database at Mother Jones was, was that uh, the, the overwhelming majority of mass shooters do acquire guns legally. And so that tells us something about where we are with, with um, the, the broader issue of gun regulation and the mass shootings problem. So there's a lot to dig into here, I think, in terms of the data of the problem and looking at what experts in the field of behavioral threat assessments say and do in their work. And that's something that I really wanted to accomplish with Trigger Points was to show the public this field of work that was virtually unknown just a few years ago, where there are many cases where people have been prevented from committing this type of violence. It's actually a very hopeful story. And we never hear about these cases typically because they result, the results are good. That there is no violent outcome, which is how success is measured in this field of work. So that's not news when there isn't a mass shooting. But there are many cases that I was able to go deep inside of for the book in my research that show there are ways to detect the warning signs and to get in the way of these attacks before they occur. I thought it interesting that you pointed out that the, those five mass shootings you just referenced um, were very similar in, in terms of the weapons and tactical gear involved. Talk about that a little bit. This kind of there's this culture of well, this kind of levels of communication, or I don't know exactly what. Maybe you could discuss that a little bit. Um, that very very similar, not only in their behavioral patterns, but in their weaponry and their protective gear and so on. <clears throat> sure. Well, this, is, this has been a trend with mass shootings that has been troubling in, in the past decade. It's escalated. Uh, it used to be that the majority of these attacks were carried out with semi-automatic pistols. Uh, there are many cases, many more cases in the past 10 years that are now using uh, AR-15 style semi-automatic rifles uh, and also perpetrators who are using body armor, tactical gear of other kinds, um, rapid fire triggering devices. Um, all of these elements uh, come against the backdrop of a cultural shift we've seen over the past couple of decades with guns where uh, gun manufacturers and gun culture has appealed strongly to the militarization of, of firearms and um, kind of fed into notions of, of 
uh, warlike masculinity, uh, what the field of behavioral threat assessment looks at through the lens of, of what they call a commando style mentality. Many mass shooters take on this, this worldview that they want to be like that in, as they prepare to carry out an attack. Um, and what's, what we've seen in the marketing of firearms from gun manufacturers over the past couple of decades plays to this, um, to these notions of, of militarization of guns, of, of masculinity. Um, they've done marketing through video games and movies that target young male demographics. So we, we have a cultural picture around guns that's very different than it was 20, 30 years ago um, when you had, even with the National Rifle Association, um, much more of a of an ethic that was focused on safety and responsibility. Um, a lot of that has changed, and and I think it's fed this problem in some ways that are are troubling. Again, you're listening to Mark Fulman, who's the <clears throat> national affairs editor at uh, Mother Jones. We're talking about well, mass shootings, this kind of horrific violence, this plague of violence, um, usually perpetrated upon innocence uh, across the culture, across the society. 608-256-2001, extension 9. If you care to join us, we can open up the phone lines a minute or two early today. At, again, 608-256-2001, extension uh, number 9. Mark, <clears throat> excuse me, you pointed out how the Massacred at, at Uvalde, Texas, <clears throat> excuse me once again, um, drew the scrutiny of, 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 of the catastrophic response by law enforcement. It received the, the overwhelming media attention. But there were other painful and sobering aspects of the case. Talk about that, uh, the array of missed warning signs, for instance. Yeah, I think this is a really important... Uh, point about what happened in Uvalde, Texas, that, um, you know, because the the, res the failed response by law enforcement uh, was so horrific and devastating, that became so much the focus of that story. And of course, with, with very good reason, that, that catastrophic response deserves great scrutiny and there needs to be accountability. But I have to say that within probably 48 hours of, of those events unfolding, I had this sinking feeling that that story was going to overshadow everything else about this case. And, and, and in my view, that has very, very much been the way it's gone. Uh, but meanwhile, this is a textbook case from the perspective of behavioral threat assessment, from the perspective of prevention, uh, in the sense that this was a young man who was demonstrating all kinds of behavioral warning signs long before the attack. Um, I document those in detail in my reporting from Mother Jones, including again in the recent essay from December at the 10-year anniversary of Sandy Hook. Um, it's a critical point here in my view that we, we meaning uh, people who have studied this issue and, and the field of behavioral threat assessment know and very much recognize the behavioral profile and circumstances of a case like this. And there are any number of opportunities along the way to intervene. Now, we don't yet know um, all the details of that case. There are multiple ongoing investigations, but I can guarantee you that 
as we learn more over time, we'll see more and more that this was a very painful picture of missed opportunities to deal with a deeply troubled young individual who then on his 18th birthday went out and acquired a, a massive arsenal of firepower and went on to kill 19 school children and, and two educators. Extremely tragic. And I think that part of the story really needs and deserves more attention as well. Yeah, certainly the, uh, the, the listing of weaponry that he acquired that you cite in your article uh, is, is a bit mind-boggling. This kid has his 18th birthday and goes out and buys, well, an arsenal. It, it's quite uh, a lot of it through the mails, mail order and, and so on. Well, and also at a, a local gun dealer. And right, I think right. this, is a, this is a prime example of the argument for raising the age limit. Now, does that mean he, he couldn't have gotten weapons otherwise? No, but it would have been harder. It was very easy for him to go out and buy the arsenal that he did uh, the day he turned 18. I want to turn the focus shifted just a tad, and that is to talk about the politics that stand in the way of change. There's this broader context of, uh, of racism and white supremacism uh, as, as a factor in many of these sh- uh, shootings. And then, of course, the, the broader culture of violence and politics of hate uh, that is ubiquitous through the culture. Uh, well, yeah, ubiquitous is the only word I can think of at this point. Well, none of what you're describing, Alan, is new, of course. Uh, we, we've had this running through our society and our politics for for many, many decades. However, uh, there we have been living through a resurgence of a lot of this, and, and I've documented this in my reporting as well, that, that violent ideology, political extremism, is fueling the mass shootings problem, has been escalating. It's primarily, overwhelmingly, from the far right. Um, and this is a real issue. It's, it's uh, it's troubling and it's it's been escalating for a number of years. And so that also, I think, points to ways in which we can and need to be thinking about prevention of this problem. And, and that does include addressing issues of violent political extremism. In, in a piece you wrote in May, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the on the epidemic of mass shootings, how it is neither inevitable or, nor unsolvable. You wrote about a, a number of enduring myths uh, about mass shootings. Let's plumb a bit the whole argument around that we, you, we, you mentioned before, but I want to come back to in regard to mental illness, that all these perpetrators uh, are mentally ill, and that the conservative nature, in a sense, uh, of of that argument. Yes, I think this is this is fundamentally important to the problem of mass shootings that we often see uh, blame directed at mental illness as the fundamental cause of mass shootings. And, and that's not true. When you study these cases, um, the, the forensic evidence shows that the majority of cases are situations where people are planning uh, in some cases quite rationally through a long process targeted violence and they're not driven by what we think of as insanity or or crazy quote unquote um, this is tricky because 
Of course, no mass shooter is someone who is mentally healthy. Uh, these are people with serious problems, behavioral, circumstantial life problems, and they may be suffering from serious mental health issues. Uh, but it is only a minority of cases where there is clinical diagnose, clinically diagnosable mental illness present. Um, and furthermore, when there is, in most cases, that is not the primary driving factor, the primary motive or exacerbating cause of the behavior. Uh, this is something that the field of threat assessment has learned over many years of study, hundreds and hundreds of cases. There's peer-reviewed scientific research showing it. This is something that I try to talk about and write about a lot since writing trigger points because mental illness is used as a political argument to distract from the issue of guns and gun regulation. Um, it's By blaming it, it's very easy to sort of you know, dismiss the problem to to treat the perpetrators of the problem as other, as inexplicable. Uh, that we call the monsters and evil, right? Uh, we've seen those arguments trotted out time and time again, but that does a real disservice to public understanding of the nature of these attacks. This is planned predatory violence by people who, yes, have serious problems but they're choosing to attack. They don't just snap. That was a myth that was long portrayed in the media. I think it's diminished in recent years, which is good. Um, this is not an impulsive crime. These aren't people who are totally out of their minds, hallucinating and just suddenly going out and committing mass murder. That's not how these cases work. Um, in the latter, that is the the snap theory, The uh, that this suddenly one of these guys went off and i say guys you know clearly uh haven't it's gender based it's it's male it's machismo it's uh uh often intertwined with a uh, kind of misogynism as well um that uh, <clears throat> quite often on the news accounts you have some neighbor or some somebody you know across the street or so on or and they often describe uh, the perpetrator as, "Gee, we didn't ex we didn't suspect anything. He seemed like a nice guy. He he must have snapped." Right. That that's another myth that I take on with the book. This notion that these come out of nowhere, that no one can see them coming. Um, it's just not true. In in the vast majority of the cases, virtually all of them, there is a trail of behavioral warning signs that are often recognizable to people around the perpetrator, people close to them, family members, friends, teachers, co-workers. Now, a lot of people may not know what they're seeing exactly, but there's often an instinctive unease, a feeling of discomfort, of worry, of concern about the person. And that's really, that, that goes to the core of, of threat assessment as a prevention model, because the majority of cases begin with someone expressing that concern, raising a hand and speaking out, asking for help. Um, so the myth that these mass shooters come out of nowhere and just snap is very counterproductive to prevention of the problem because it's not true. There are often opportunities to see a case like this forming before it happens. Talk about, you know, you, you said earlier that we don't hear about the successes of threat assessment analysis and, and, and so on, um, because they're successful, um, Talk about that a little bit. Talk maybe some, give our listeners an idea of, uh, well, a success story, for instance. 
Sure. Well, in, in Trigger Points, I write about um, a school program, threat assessment program in Salem, Oregon, that was one of the first to pioneer this model after Columbine in 1999. And I was able to spend a lot of time with them in 2019 studying cases and watching them work cases in real time. And I, I, I write uh, kind of the deep story of a couple of cases in the book. Uh, one was, was a, a high school junior who I call Brandon, who had made some threatening comments about bringing a gun to school, uh, was creating a lot of concern among peers. Uh, Threat assessment team got a tip from a student who was worried, had heard him talking about, in very specific ways, shooting up the school, Um, was threatening to get his father's gun from home and bring it to commit the attack. And the threat assessment team moved quickly to uh, gather more information about Brandon, what was going on with him. He had some other issues going on where he was failing out of classes. His his personal circumstances were deteriorating, which is something that you see in a lot of, of mass shooting cases um, in, in the sort of final run-up to the act. And what they did was intervene quickly with a lot of constructive help. They got him counseling help. They gave him individual educational support. They worked with his mother to secure, make sure his home was secure, that he couldn't get firearms in the home as he was threatening to do. Um, This is the work of of threat management that teams do. And I was able to watch the Salem-Kaiser team do this work over uh, many months in this case and in others. And to see how uh, Brandon began to respond positively to the help he was getting, the, the better connection to leaders in the school, to teachers, Um, more direct connection with his family uh, between the school and working with local law enforcement to make sure that everyone involved was safe. A lot of this is done behind the scenes. The public doesn't know about this. Obviously, a case like this is very sensitive because you don't want to stigmatize an individual as dangerous. Uh, You have to do this protecting civil liberties and privacy, both educational, mental health-wise, and beyond. Um, but teams that are knowledgeable and experienced at doing this can do it really well. And, and I, I document those stories in the book to show ways in which this can be really effective. A case like Brandon's, he was, he was handled this way for more than a year, and he went on to graduate high school and, and, and do fine. Um, there was no violent outcome. And this is a real success story in this world of prevention work. Our producer, Jade, tells me that we do have a caller waiting to come on with a question. Hello, David, you're on the air. Hey, Ellen. You know, it's really uh, unfortunate uh, watching all these incidents of people, uh, school kids, and people in Walmarts, and and people being just slaughtered, you know, by right. What's your language? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ellen. You're a bunch of limp-wristed journalists. You're not going to stop this. We have to, we have to, there's going to be some mass shootings and there better be some mass shootings of people on the right wing. Well, that was an interesting call. Thank you, David. Response, Uh, Mark? Well, look, I, I... I, I don't buy the idea that the response to gun violence is more gun violence. That's no better than the argument from the far right or the National Rifle Association, which is more guns everywhere. Um, gun violence begets more gun violence. That's not a solution. 
608-256-2001, extension uh, 9, if you want to join us again with an observation, a question, a comment, 608-256-2001, extension 9. I'm going to talk about some of the warning signs, you know, in, in that discussion of Brandon, uh, this case in Oregon, uh, you alluded to uh, some, but go into that a, a little bit deeper. Certainly your work and the work of others uh, has chronicled the whole uh, panoply of warning signs of indicators. Sure. In, in trigger points, I describe eight broad areas of, of warning behaviors and warning signs in, in mass shooting cases. And in a case like Brandon's, there, there was the, the, the behavior that set off the case for the threat assessment team is, is pretty common, which is what I call threatening communications. And we see a lot of this now um, through social media and, and online. Um, it also comes through uh, individuals talking to people around them, to peers or coworkers, um, threatening communications often come in other forms of expression, writing, writing in journals, drawings. If you recall the case at Oxford High School in Michigan, uh, recently there was uh, some very explicit graphic violent drawings by the perpetrator. These are common warning signs in cases, especially among youth. Uh, some of the other areas that I describe in this this set of eight categories are uh, deteriorating life circumstances. As I mentioned earlier about Brandon, there was some noticeable changes in his behavior and routine that uh, to the trained eye were concerning. Um, You have uh, what I call emulation behavior in in the book. Uh, This is what's known more commonly as the copycat problem. This comes up in a lot of mass shooting cases where perpetrators are are interested in their predecessors and they're identifying with previous mass shooters. Uh, there's a whole story of this that I tell about what's what I call the Columbine effect, how uh, the Columbine mass shooting in 1999 set off a lot more of this culturally uh, that then grew further with the advent of social media. Um, so there are a number of ways that, that experts can look at a set of um, behaviors and circumstances in a case and see these patterns and, and know that there's a serious problem um, and a rising danger and, and look for ways to intervene. You know, a lot of this comes back to, as I'm sitting here uh, listening to you and thinking about it a bit further, a lot of this, you know, preventative work uh, comes back to a need for resources, resources that are often not there um, when social spending in schools, uh, the cutbacks in public education and, and counseling and so on, and other institutions, <clears throat> in the, certainly in, in the public sector, have been gutted by some of the, uh, you know, very same elements that are calling for solutions. Uh, talk about that a little bit, that this, bro- again, this broader social context uh, that uh, doesn't spell, uh, doesn't, you know, spell well for for the future, I would argue. Yeah, I think it's an important point. Um, 
in a, in a broad sense that that social services and the kinds of, of resources needed to do prevention work often are are um, falling short, right, or pushed aside. Um, that said, you know, no problem is fixed just by throwing money or resources at it. You have to have the, the right tools in place, the right training, um, and I think one of the things that's actually quite promising about behavioral threat assessment as a model, as a community-based model, um, you know, one of the one of the questions I had when I began investigating it was, how do you do this? How do you scale it? Right? It sounds like something that's very resource intensive, and and it is in some ways. But one of the things about it that is promising is that it can rely on infrastructure and resources that are largely already in place, especially in a school setting, for example, where the safety and well-being of students is very much the the, the, the charge of a, of a school system, right? They have to protect students first and foremost, as well as educate them. Um, so you have people in place who are are, uh, who have that responsibility, school counselors, administrators. Uh, it's a matter of getting the training to do this kind of work, right? So yes, there are resources needed. And I think that um, when you have uh, political and policy leaders taking away those resources or not prioritizing them, that's a real problem. But at the same time, we shouldn't look at resources and social safety issues um, as, um, it, you know, an insurmountable obstacle to doing this kind of work either, because, uh, you know, in a way, I think that that sort of disincentivizes this as a real solution. But there are ways we can step in using existing resources um, to say, you know, we're going to prioritize greater attention and greater connection with people who need that to prevent them from going down this, this terrible path, what the field calls the pathway to violence. There's critics of, of behavioral th uh, threat assessment. Uh, it's, it's raised some concern among some. That is, w one concern is that the practice might encourage profiling of students and workers. Another is that the threat teams may evade, invade people's privacy by, for example, conducting broad surveillance on what people are, are posting on social media and so on. Talk about that, um, the concerns, some of which I, I, I find uh, somewhat you know, justifiable or at least uh, must must be considered. Absolutely. And, and it's a great question, uh, one that I looked into deeply in, in writing the book. Um, I, I think it's it poses a really interesting challenge for this field of work. The name alone is in the semantics are are, are um, the nomenclature are, are a challenge. I think, you know, when you talk about behavioral threat assessment, it sounds very negative in a certain way. Or, um, I think the public tends to often assume, especially given the law enforcement role on a team, that this is punitive and prosecutorial in nature, uh, when in fact it's fundamentally not intending to do that. Um, in its ideal form, this work is constructive intervention and prevention. Um, so again, th the theme of prevention over reaction and response, right? This isn't about trying to pr prosecute crime. Ideally, it's meant to prevent crime. But yes, the process of going about doing that is, is complicated and, and can be quite delicate. Uh, I think, you know, the leaders and pioneers of this field that I got to know in writing trigger points, they're, they're keenly aware of the, these challenges and, and do see them as a priority, that you have to do this work at a level of quality that, that uh, respects and protects civil liberties and privacy. And not only does that, but then articulates that to the community uh, through a 
transparency to the degree that's possible, even with sensitive cases, and with accountability for the process. Um, and there are some big challenges there with this field, which is still in some ways nascent and, and emerging. It's uh, um, become more known in recent years. Its uh, threat assessment is now required in public school systems in a handful of states. There are many companies that are using it, government agencies that use it. Um, but I think there's still an enormous uh, challenge to engage the public with this type of work in a way that builds uh, trust and confidence that this is a good way to go about stopping violence. You know, we're getting toward the end of the hour, Mark Fullman. I'm wondering, as, as you look back now, you've been doing this kind of work, uh, looking at these mass shootings and, and possible conceivable solutions. What do you come away with? What are the big lessons that you've picked up on that have uh, become part of your thinking, uh, your concern? You know, Alan, it might sound, uh, I guess, a little bit remarkable, but I, I have a real optimism about this in a certain sense, because what I came to understand through study of the problem over the years is that there is a lot more we can do as a society if we think more broadly about this issue. Um, you know, it took a while, I think, to get past the the political deadlock for me in my thinking about this, that that's so frustrating to so many people. I think as we repeat the same arguments over and over, like Groundhog's Day after these terrible tragedies. Um, but when you get past that and really study the nature of gun violence um, and mass shootings in particular, and look at these specific tools, including threat assessment as community-based prevention, I, I'm optimistic that there's a lot more we can do uh, to deal with the problem while recognizing the reality of guns in the United States. Um, it's one thing to say everyone should have a gun so that we can stop gun violence or to say take away all the guns, but neither of those things are realistic. And I became much more interested in what can we do realistically? What more can we do um, in addition to uh, seeking you know, broad consensus on reasonable gun regulations, which we know exist from exists from public polling over many years, that people want that, the majority of Americans want that. But because we have so much trouble getting that as a nation, um, we have to be thinking in other ways about how to tackle this problem. And in seeing this prevention work up close over the years and studying it, I became persuaded that there's a lot of good, effective prevention work going on, and we could be doing more of it. At one point, <clears throat> excuse me, once, once more, <clears throat> sorry, folks. At one point, you say that it's going to take everything we got uh, to address this problem, to uh, move toward a, um, make some progress on it. You talk about a, a sort of holistic, integrated approach, which obviously, uh, obviously just came out in, in your preceding statement. Talk about the things that, on your list, if you had a, a kind of wish list of, of things that uh, you would hope would come into play, uh, such things, for instance, of uh, strengthening the nation's gun laws. One I found very interesting, uh, especially in this, again, political climate, is the quiet a quashing of a surge in violent political extremism, um, part of a, certainly part of a wish list. Yeah, and I think my my sense of, of what the sort of fundamental point is here too is that 
we're so used to thinking, I think, in some sense, narrowly as a society about the issue of, of mass shootings and of gun violence, that it's, again, that it's all about this political debate over firearms. But really, we need to be thinking much more broadly um, and taking into account the world in which we live now. That means digital media, digital technology, the way that threatening communications happen now and have escalated. Political extremism also fueled by that technology. Um, yes, gun regulations that, that are um, shown to be promising, that have efficacy in research, you know, peer-reviewed research that shows that they can help stop certain kinds of gun violence. Um, and, you know, really dispensing with this idea that this is always going to be a huge problem in America, that, that, that it's inevitable, that we can't stop it. You know, there's this kind of political despair and outrage that we repeat as well now that I think is very unhelpful. Um, there is a lot more that we can do in, in, in taking these much more kind of broad-based steps uh, to try to deal with the problem. Well, of course, I, in preparing for the program, I could see that you're constantly writing on these issues. Uh, a question I often like to end with our guests is, what are you working on now? What's, uh, what kind of irons do you have in the fire? Well, it's interesting because there is a real nexus of these issues. Uh, in my work for Mother Jones, I've covered a lot of violent political extremism um, in the past handful of years, gun violence problem, mass shootings. These things have converged more in some ways. And so I've, I've got some more uh, research and writing in the works on that. Um, I thought that when I published Trigger Points after several years of work on the book, that um, that would sort of be the, the exclamation point on my work on this topic that would represent an end. Uh, but really, it's also, in a way, opened up the subject even more for me. It's brought some interesting, as, as the book's gotten some attention nationally, it's brought some really interesting story ideas my way. So I have some things in the works, too, that will continue down this road as well in preventing mass shootings. Well, we're coming right down to the hour, Mark Fullman. I want, I want to thank you very much. You've been listening to journalist Mark Fullman. Oh, who's been covering mass shootings for the past decade. He's currently the national affairs editor at Mother Jones and former editor at Salon. Uh, his reporting and commentaries have appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, Los Angeles Times, and numerous other outlets. Uh, and we've been talking in part this hour about his book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Mark, I want to thank you. I want to thank Chuck, our engineer, uh, Jade, our producer. I want to thank our caller, callers, and uh, you, our listeners, for once again tuning in to WRT's A Public Affair. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. With information that will never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support it Live and direct, we come and never